to uh, the book of Second Peter. Past two months, we've been going through this book uh, verse by verse, and this morning we come to the last two verses in uh, in this chapter. These verses are really the the culminating thought of uh, the entire first chapter, which Peter began in verses one through four. If you remember, talking about how we've been given everything needed for life and godliness, he says in. In verse 1, that we've been given a faith. In verse 2, we've received grace and peace, which will multiply to us. Lord willing, verse 4, we've been given promises. Promises of the Messiah fulfilled in Christ and promises of sanctification in Christ. And verse 3 is the biggest one. That we have received everything pertaining to life and godliness in Christ Jesus. There's nothing that we lack to live a godly life. There's nothing we lack. Or as I put it, we are ready to grow. All things we have. Then in verses 5 through 7, Peter details for us some of the ways in which we grow in Christ. Though we've been given everything to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, it doesn't just happen. Rather, God calls us to apply all diligence in our faith so as to obtain a measure of growth in our lives. And he says that we are to apply all diligence in our faith, supplying moral excellence. A likeness, a sweetness of Christ, a knowledge of Jesus, a self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. And the big question that really stems out of that is this, are you growing? Are you growing? Are these things becoming more and more evident in your life? Because if they're increasing, you will... Find yourself to be fruitful in knowledge of Christ, as verse 9 says. And if they are not increasing, you find yourself blind to the faith that you profess. And then according to verse 10, we see these qualities are present in our lives. We show that indeed we are the elect of God. If you are growing in in godliness and brotherly kindness and love and moral excellence and knowledge and self-control, you know that God has chosen you because He's working in your life. And you know the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Now, lest you think that Peter's words here are unimportant, just another paragraph in the Bible that just kind of passed on by. Realize these are his dying words. Peter knew he was soon to lay down his earthly tent, and he knew these would be the last words he could say to these loved people he had, and so he reminded them of the most important things in life. What's the most important things? God's given us everything to grow and we are to grow in Him as a demonstration of our faith and love towards Him. If any of his readers doubted the veracity of his message, he tells them beginning here in verse 16 of his own experience. He said, we didn't follow these cleverly devised tales. These are real. These are authentic. He was an eyewitness of Jesus transformed upon the mountain. He was an ear witness of God the Father's affirmation upon the life of His Son. This is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Peter saw it. He heard it. It's confirmed and it's sure. But Peter says, beyond though my experiences, don't just trust Me, what I saw and what I heard. Rather, listen to the Scriptures which we have, which are more sure than even my experience. And then in verses 20 and 21, Peter will focus our attention upon the sure Word of God and will show how sure it is. My message this morning is appropriately titled The the Sure Word. I get my title from verse 19, which reads, We have the even more sure 
prophetic word. It's the prophetic word which is sure. It's referring to the Scripture, even as he's going to speak about here in verse 20, that no prophecy of Scripture. It applies directly to the prophets, but extends far beyond that. It's talking about the Scripture as well. And the burden of Peter's message here is he says to listen to the Word of God. It is firm. Don't listen to the false prophets. And in fact, everything that Peter said up to this point is really a prelude in the anticipation of chapter 2 where he's going to address the false prophets because these false teachers will try to convince you you don't have all the resources you need to grow in godliness in Christ. They'll say you need to listen to them because they have the resources. The false teachers will claim you don't really need to grow in Christ-likeness to be saved. You just need to know. Just, just profess this knowledge. That's all you need. These false teachers may disdain the, the constant reminders of Peter. Come on, let's move on to more exciting things. The Christian faith is about this and flash and fun. He says, no, no, it's the old things. It's the true things that stay, stay true. These false teachers may try to lessen the importance of Peter's experience. Well, Peter may have had experience, but I had an experience too. God told me. Listen, if anyone ever says God told you, they're just instantly saying that you can't argue with me anymore. Because God told me. Because you can't argue with an experience. And false teachers often use that. Trust in my experience over above Peter. But it is interesting. Peter said, don't even trust in my experience. Trust in the more sure prophetic word. And then these false teachers may try to discredit the Bible. You can't interpret it on your own. Let me interpret it for you. And all these words are preparing the way so as to argue his case for chapter 2. This morning we have a sure word. Now, if you're all a student of the Scripture, you know what the Bible says about itself. Time after time after time after time, the Scripture speaks of the truthfulness and the trustworthiness of Scripture. Psalm 19 is a favorite of mine. The law of the Lord is perfect. The Scripture, God's law, is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The precepts of the Lord are right. means they're righteous. means that they're straight. means that they are reliable. The commandment of the Lord, Psalm 19, verse 8, is pure. Psalm 93, verse 5 says, Your testimonies are fully confirmed. Psalm 111, verse 7 says, All His precepts are sure. And Psalm 119, that great commentary on the Word of God, gives us this counsel. All your commandments are faithful. Every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. You have founded your testimonies forever. Just speaks about the surety of God's word that Peter's going to affirm for us here in verse 20 and 21. And think about when the prophets spoke throughout the Bible hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times, like approaching a thousand. The prophets say, Thus saith the Lord. Or God says, thus saith the Lord. And God says it, and it's recorded for us in the Bible, those words are true. And when the prophet was speaking, they were speaking the very words of God. And as Jesus walked the earth, He gave us no hint in any way whatsoever that the truth of the Scriptures was anything but trustworthy, reliable, eternal, and completely inspired. On one occasion, Jesus said, the Scriptures cannot be broken. They will be fulfilled. They can't be broken. On another occasion, he said, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest stroke or, 
or letter will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Not even one letter will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. The Apostle Paul confirmed the veracity of the Scriptures. He said the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The Word of God is righteous, it's good, it is sure, it is to be trusted. When Peter spoke about the Word of God, he quoted Isaiah. He said, all flesh is like grass and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades. But, he says what? The Word of the Lord, finish it for me, the Word of the Lord endures forever, right? That's how sure it is. God's Word endures forever. It's trustworthy. And we must pay attention to it. That's what Peter says here in verse 19. You do well to pay attention to this prophetic Word, this Scripture. That's Peter's point. Well, in our text, verse 20 and 21, Peter gives us three characteristics of God's Word which show us how firm it is. First of all, God's Word is not meaningless. It's not meaningless. You you ask your average person on the street, I've talked to enough non-Christians to hear this again and again and again about the Bible. You say, what do you think about the Bible? And and non-Christians oftentimes will respect the Bible. Say, it's uh, it's a good book. It's um, inspired even, many non-Christians will say. Meaning it's inspiring. They will... They will lift it up. They, they will say it is, it is the cornerstone of Christianity and thereby they will respect it. But often, people have a, a degree of apprehension about its meaning. Very quickly comes the accusation. Whoa, it's just so hard to interpret. There are many translations out there. Right? There's lots of interpretations. Lots of denominations. Who knows what the Bible means? And I find especially when talking with non-Christians, when you begin to press them on their sin... And you begin to press them with the claims of the Bible. Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Oh, how quickly they say, that's your interpretation. You know, I've got my own interpretation. You've got your interpretation. Saying these things, they're ultimately saying the Bible's meaningless. Because you can't even determine what it says. Beauty's in the eye of the beholder. If it works for you, that's great. Happy for you, but it doesn't work for me. Because that's my meaning. People say the Bible is meaningless. Listen, but it's not. The Scriptures do have a meaning. And that's what Peter is saying here in verse 20. No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. I, I believe what Peter is talking about here. It's not up to your whim. It's not up to your fancy. It's not up to your vote what the Bible says. It's not your interpretation, your interpretation, your interpretation. No, there is a meaning to be gathered there. Now, this phrase has been taken in several different ways. Some have understood it to mean that we are not capable of finding that meaning for ourselves. We need somebody else to interpret it. After all, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. You can't interpret it. You can't interpret it because you don't know what it is. You need someone to help you. And the Roman Catholic Church steps in and says, Yes, we're the ones who have the task of officially explaining to you the meaning of the Scripture. Now, such an interpretation fails to have the verse in the Bible. When the Gospel came to those in Berea. They were commended, Acts 17, verse 11, as being more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica because what they do? They examine the Scriptures daily to see if the things were true. They themselves look to see for their interpretation and understanding of these things. It's not like they had their own interpretation, but they were checking to see if these people coming, Paul and Silas, had 
their interpretation and we're matching it up according to what God has revealed. Furthermore, Paul tells us Scripture is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness without any mention of needing somebody to explain it to you. So Scripture itself, open and laid bare, will help us all to learn and grow in godliness. And then, of course, the Reformers in the 1500s rejected this interpretation of the Roman Catholic Church. So the Reformers sought to take the Bible, put it in the hands of the people. The Catholic Church sought to take the Bible out of the hands of the people and into the hands of the priests. And so Reformers sought to, to take the Bible out of the hands of the church and put it into the hands of the people. They correctly pointed out this word interpretation here literally has the idea of unloosing. And thus, you can read verse 20 like this. Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own loosing. Meaning that it doesn't come out of somebody, right? Rather, it comes from God. Verse 20 isn't talking so much, they say, about interpretation as much as talking about inscripturation. That's exactly what verse 20 is talking, right? Verse 21 speaks about no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. It wasn't men who did it. It was God moved by the Holy Spirit who spoke through them. And so as a result of that, they say that um, that's what verse 19 says. Now, it's totally true, verse, verse 20 rather, that uh, this interpretation here is more of an unloosing but I don't think Peter says the same thing in verse 20 as he says in verse 21. I think he's saying a little bit subtle difference in 20 and 21. And on top of that, verse 20 even speaks about one's own interpretation. It's not like the, uh, the prophets are making that interpretation for themselves. And so I think that verse 20 is getting at our interpretation of the Bible. It's getting at the illumination of Scripture. It's getting at fundamentally the meaning of Scripture. And he says it's not willy-nilly for anybody to figure it out for themselves. There is a meaning. We need to search for it. We need to find it. And I think it's because this word interpretation, it's used other, two other times in the Scriptures. And both times it has, a, it has an idea of explaining the meaning. In Mark 4, verse 34, we read of how Jesus did not speak to the crowds without a parable. Rather, He was explaining everything privately to His own disciples. He was loosing it. He was opening it up. He was explaining it to them. And then in Acts 19, after the riot in Ephesus began to calm down, the town clerk told the people there that any further action you want to take place, it should be explained in a lawful assembly. It should be opened up there. It should be loosed there. It should be interpreted. It should be understood. And that's what Peter's point is here, is that no prophecy of Scripture is one of any private interpretation, as the King James Version says. Right? The meaning of Scripture isn't up for grabs, like many outside the church would claim. It's interesting, though, as, as much as we might look upon those outside the church and just say, hey, they don't, they don't think Scripture has a meaning. There are plenty in the church who do the same thing. How many times have there been a, a group of people sitting around in a Bible study, having their Bibles opened, and they read a verse and say, hmm, that was interesting. Um, Mary, what do you think? And Mary gives her opinion. Right? And then Ted gives his opinion. Right? And then George gives his opinion. And, backs around, and they come here and hmm, that's interesting, and reads the next verse and says, hmm, Mary, what do you think? And just goes around the circle again. And, and, and even can have contradictory understandings, and it's, well, okay. Many in the, the church have done that. What happens? What do you get? Everybody with their own interpretation. And Peter's saying, Scripture isn't about everybody with their own interpretation. 
Peter's message is exactly the opposite. God's Word is not meaningless. God's Word, Scripture, has a meaning. See, it's not your own interpretation. It's God's interpretation that matters. I remember hearing R.C. Sproul say on, on several occasions, it's, uh, you know, people ask the question, what does Scripture mean to you? He says, I don't care what it means to you. What does it mean to you when you're dead? That's what's important. Right? What does it mean to God? That's fundamentally what's important. Now, admittedly, there are times when it's difficult to discern the meaning of the Scripture. I, I admit that. But that doesn't mean there's not a meaning. There is a meaning. Now, for the most part, the Bible's the meaning of the Bible is simple and straightforward. R.C. Sproul did say, if we can read the newspaper, we can read the Bible. How many of you can read the newspaper? How many of you can? Andrew, can you read the newspaper? You can. Okay, then can you read the Bible? You can. Even a child can read the Bible. Week in, week out here on Sunday mornings, I try to model for you how to study the Scriptures. I try to model how to read them, how to interpret them, and how to apply them. Listen, if you're at all paying attention to what I do, um, I think it sets the stage for a good Bible study methodology yourself. All I do is, as I go into the Scriptures, I just pull out observation after observation after observation. Some of them are obvious, some of them you might have to dig a little bit, but all of them, hopefully, are true for all of you to see. You say, yep, that's true, I see that right in the text. And then after observing and all these, all these observations, then these observations then apply to my interpretation that I seek to put upon the text. And my aim is for clarity. I don't want you reading, leaving Rock Valley Bible Church saying, wow, that's a great message that Steve preached. I could never have got that myself, but it was a great message. And if you go out from this place saying that, I failed. But if you go out saying... Wow, there's a great message. The Bible is more clear to me than ever before. I can see everything that Steve said lines up with Scripture. I can see it came right out from there. So I try to form my outline straight from the text of the Scripture. So you might be trained in just a way to think about the Bible. And then as you see my observations, which turn into interpretations, then these are appropriate then to apply the Scriptures. All springing from the text. Applications kind of come out of the text. Well, getting back to verse 20, Peter's point is that Scripture has a clear meaning. It's not a matter of our own interpretation. I think he was warning the people here, listen, when the false teachers arise, speaking of their own opinions, realize that Scripture has a meaning and that meaning should be clear. If you're being told something from the Scripture, you can't quite make sense of it all. It may just be that it's a private and personal interpretation of the one speaking it. So don't follow such teachers. If you can't see the message is thoroughly biblical and comes from the page of Scripture, then don't follow those guys. It may just be they've come up with their own cleverly devised tales that Peter himself denied in verse 19. But, but in saying that, Peter's not saying don't try to interpret the Scriptures. On the contrary, he says all of us should make efforts to be well-versed in the Scriptures. You should study the Bible and read the Bible for the good of your own soul. You should teach it to your children. Children, you should quote it to your parents. Verses you learn at Awana. You learn at school. Whatever. Read and listen to what others say. Always sifting through. You would do well to be like the Bereans. You would do well to be diligent to present yourself, approved unto God, a workman who needs not to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. You would do well to pay attention to the prophetic word. As he says in verse 19 there, 
See, it's not up to each individual to determine the meaning, but it is for us to seek to find God's meaning that He has in the text. Now, regarding your personal Bible study, the best counsel I can give you is the three words I already talked about. Observation, interpretation, application. And when you read a text of the Bible, observe. Be like Sherlock Holmes. And look and investigate and uncover the clues. Who's writing? Who's he writing to? How is he writing? Is it fact? Is it history? Is it parable? Is it theology? Is, is he speaking? Is someone else speaking? Is there an explanation going on? What's the circumstances? What's being said? What's not being said? What's being left out? What words are chosen? How is it being said? What's emphasized? All these things are just observations. And you pull all these together, and then putting all those observations together, you then form an interpretation. You say, I think this is what it means. This is the author's intent. This is what he's trying to communicate. And then ask yourself, is this consistent with the rest of the Scripture? Does it make sense? Is it straightforward? Just read your Bible. Is it straightforward? Okay. Application. Then when you read the Bible, look for appropriate application. Is there a command to obey? Are there truths to believe? Are there sins to turn from? How does my life need to change as a result? Observe, interpret, and apply. It's real simple. I try to do that every single week of my life. That's what my life is about. Observing and interpreting and applying. You know, and if you're, if you're interested in that, I just, I just grabbed a few books from our library. You can take these home today. Great book. Living by the, living by the book. Howard Hendricks just talks to you about how to, how to study the Bible for yourself. Um, another, another good book, Our Sufficiency in Christ. MacArthur just talks about just um, you know, things from the Scripture. MacArthur, anything you grab from MacArthur is going to be just straight out of the Bible. Wonderful. Or um, you know, other things. Just How Long, O Lord. Great book on suffering. D.A. Carson. Got good, good exposition of Job in here. Good exposition of the sovereignty of God, the difficulties of suffering. Just read stuff like this. Or NAS Topical Bible. You're curious about uh, some kind of topic. Just grab it. There, there's back there for your taking. For I'm not sure how easier. Maybe we could move the table closer to the door. Might be easier to help you in your Bible study techniques. I'm not sure. My hope and prayer for Rock Valley Bible Church, though, is that we would be, we would live up to our name. Rock Valley Bible. Church, that we would be Bible people, that we would be Bible saturated, that that we would be people who know and study the Scriptures and believe what they say about God, and believe what they say about Christ, and believe what they say about how we're justified by faith in Him alone, and believe what they say about His return, believe what the Scripture says. To that end, I'd encourage you to develop convictions from Scripture and, and live them out. And just because it says here that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Realize it's just simply saying that if you study for yourself, you can find and understand God's interpretation. And I encourage when you find that, stand on it. I think about Martin Luther as a great example in this. He studied the Scripture and found in Romans 1, particularly the, the cornerstone that launched it all, he found that we are justified by faith alone. It's not the Catholic Church rules and regulations that need to be kept. It's just believe in Christ. And He is our righteousness. We are not our righteousness in Him. And then, as Luther started reading that, he found it throughout all the Bible. It wasn't a minor doctrine, okay? 
You've got to be careful standing on some minor doctrine. But this is a doctrine that permeates all of Scripture. It is the message of the Bible. We're justified by faith alone through the work of Jesus Christ. As he read more and more, he was convinced of that. He began talking to his students and he became convinced of this. He read older people, like particularly like Augustine. He, he began to see that they, they wrote about it. And as he read Paul and more, it got, it got clearer in his mind. He began to teach about that and he planned to write about that and it got him in trouble. In fact, one time he was brought before the Diet of Worms, standing before the, the church ecclesiastical council there and they told him to recant of his writings. He was facing his possible death but so convinced he was of his interpretation that he said those famous words, Since then your majesty and your lordship requires, desires a simple reply. I will answer without horns and without teeth, Martin Luther said. Unless I'm convinced by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they are contradicting each other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. And though it's historically debated, he probably said, Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. He stood on his interpretation because he knew that his interpretation was the meaning of the text. It was only, Martin Luther was only enabled to stand when he was convinced the Scripture had a meaning. And that's what Peter's trying to say. It's not just a matter of whim. There is a meaning for you to find. May God give us the grace to do the same. Well, let's look now at our second point. God's Word is sure. Not only is it not meaningless, but second, God's Word is not from man. It's the first half of verse 21. Peter writes, No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. The point is here that biblical writers never decided for themselves to write the Scriptures. A prophet never said, I'm going to go and be a prophet, and then go and say, I'm going to write some Scriptures, and then go write some Scriptures. Rather, it was God who was the one who initiated and then moved them to write the Scriptures. We'll, we'll see that in my third point. But this point here is talking about how, how the, the prophets, it wasn't of their own. And here we're not so much talking about interpretation as we're talking about inspiration. How it is that the the prophets actually wrote Scripture. What is that process? See, none of the biblical writers ever set on a quest to write the Scripture. Think about Moses. Exodus chapter 3. He sees this burning bush. And he was out minding his own business. He sees this bush burning. He's attracted to it. And he encounters God. And at one point, God says... Go and talk to Pharaoh and talk to your people. And Moses was hesitant at best. Moses said, what if they will not believe me or listen to me? He said, please Lord, I've never been eloquent. Please Lord, now send the message by whomever you will. He tried to get out of the job. He tried to get out of the responsibility. And in part he did with Aaron's help, but in part he didn't because he wrote the Pentateuch. God appeared to Moses, gave him the words to write. And he wrote a good chunk, maybe a tenth, maybe an eighth of all the Bible. It's not because he wanted to, but it was because of the call of God upon his life to write down the written law. See, it's not from man. And when God called Jeremiah, similar thing. He told Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 1, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. And it's interesting, like Moses, Jeremiah was hesitant as well. 
he said, uh, uh, Alas, Lord God, I do not know how to speak. I'm a youth. And God says, Don't say I'm a youth. Because everywhere I send you, you shall go. And all that I command you, you shall speak. I have put my words into your mouth. God's initiating. It wasn't, it wasn't the, the prophets who initiated it. It was God who appeared in their lives and said, go and do this. And throughout the writings of other prophets, you see God interrupting their lives. Take, take Ezekiel by the river Kibar among the exiles. When he saw the heavens open, he saw visions of God. It was, it was God who appeared to Ezekiel there by the river. It wasn't Ezekiel who said, I'm just going to write some inspiring thing about God. God appeared to him. Hosea 1.1 begins with these words, The word of the Lord which came to Hosea. Joel 1.1 The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Jonah 1.1 The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. The God's Word is coming to them. God is encountering them. They aren't seeking it. In the New Testament, you see the same pattern. Saul was on his way to persecute Christians when Jesus arrested him there on the road. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He would tell Ananias to tell him, he's a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel. God summoned Paul to a ministry to the Gentiles. His letters were an overflow of God's call upon his life. And I think everything we're talking here about Peter and the prophecy primarily refers to the Old Testament, but carries over the New Testament as well. Look over in chapter 3, verse 15. Peter's commenting on Paul's writings. And he says, Here's our beloved brother Paul has been given wisdom, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. They're, unstorting, they're, they're distorting Paul like they do the rest of the Scriptures because Paul is part of the Scriptures. So everything we're talking today about the Scriptures I, I think includes Paul and by extension would include Peter and the Revelation which would be written later. But Matthew, Mark, John, and Peter were all called by Jesus Himself to perform His will. Jesus made it clear, You did not choose Me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and your fruit, your fruit would remain. And one of their tasks, one of their fruit, was to write Scripture for us. And my point is simply this, no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. Fundamentally, this gives support then to my first point, which is exactly what Peter says, right? For no prophecy. Because no prophecy. That's why prophecy has meaning. It's because God is the one who gave that meaning. Because it wasn't the prophets themselves who decided they are going to do it. And if you're looking for further proof how it wasn't the prophets themselves, look over in 1 Peter. 1 Peter is very interesting here when he's talking about the salvation about which Peter is writing. 1 Peter 1 verse 10. He said, The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you so you picture here, your Old Testament saints, they're prophesying of the grace that would come to these people in the first century A.D. They themselves made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating. So he predicted the sufferings of Christ, the glories to follow. They wrote better than they knew. And that proves then that prophecy wasn't from themselves. If it was from themselves, they would wrote, write what they know, unless they're whatever modern people today who write, they don't know what they're writing about. But, but these, these, these prophets, 
because they didn't know exactly everything they wrote, shows that it's not from themselves. It wasn't from their own accord. I mean, how is it, here this Christmas time, how is it that they could predict, Micah 5.2, about the coming of Christ to be born in Bethlehem? How could they do that? Not if it's from themselves, they couldn't do that. How is it they could prophesy like Isaiah did, that there would be a child born to us, a son would be given to us, and the government would be over... How, how could he know that? Except that God inspired How could he know that the, the Messiah would be born of a virgin? Isaiah 7:14. How could these prophecies of the, the birth of Christ be known? They didn't know them. It was God who stirred in them. And down through the ages, there have always been prophets who spoke, though, on their own accord. Listen to Jeremiah 23, verse 16. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination and not from the mouth of the Lord. Coming from their own imagination. And Peter says, No prophecy of Scripture has come from man. Second Peter 1, 21. Never made by an act of human will. Ezekiel said the same thing of these false prophets. Thus says the Lord, Woe to those foolish prophets who are following their own spirit and have seen nothing. They're just following their own whims. But they have seen nothing. And the spirit of the false prophets was the spirit of the false teachers of Peter's day. They didn't come with a message from the Lord. They came with cleverly devised tales. They came, as chapter 2, verse 2 says, maligning the truth. And in so doing, the false teachers of Peter's day are not unlike the false prophets of old. Their message has no authority because it doesn't come from the Lord. It comes from themselves, their own hearts, their own minds, their own whims, their own imaginations, their own spirits. And so by great measure, this is how you discern between a false teacher and a a right teacher. The false teacher will come up with his own message. God told me. Claim that. Think that up. The true teacher will teach the faithful words of God recorded in the Scriptures, which originate God, not us. I'm not here, Rock Valley Bible Church, to preach anything novel to you in any way. I want to be faithful to the old paths, Jeremiah said. Just what Peter has written may come through me to us. Well, let's turn our attention to the positive. We've seen the negative. God's Word is not meaningless. It's not from man. Thirdly now, God's Word is from God. And here's the point. Being from God, it is sure. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. I love the picture that Peter gives here of of how the prophets of old wrote the Scriptures. Yes, it was men who wrote. Scripture never denies that. But God didn't just drop down and give us a word. It was men who wrote it. It was his holy men, as the King James Version says, who put pen to paper and wrote the Scriptures for us. But these men who wrote were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Nautical ship terminology. You put up a sail of a wind and the Holy Spirit's blowing the ship along. It's blowing the people along. It's a sense of what Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is inspired by God. Inspired. Ekpenumitas. It is out-breathed. It is breathed out. It is blown along by God. And ultimately, the final product of these men being blown along by God is that what they write is God's Word. They spoke from God. And we can be assured 
that what we have is the very Word of God. We can be assured that in our hands are the very words that God has given us to guide us in the paths of life. This is our instruction manual for life. Christmas time comes up. I know a lot of little toys will be bought for some little boys maybe. Some instruction manuals will be there. How to assemble a bike or how to assemble this game or, or games will be given and you've got to look to the rule book. This, this is God's rule book. This is our assembly instruction. This is everything. This is our manner of life. It's the Bible we have before our, our hands. At this point, I do want to note for you now that human writers never lost their personality in the writing of Scripture. God used the genius of Paul to write complex theological letters. He used the simplicity of John to write simple works drawing us to love. He used the the roughness of John the Baptist to preach as he did. He doesn't deny our personality. He uses that as he blows us along. The ship that gets blown by the wind is still a ship just in a different place. It's accomplished a different task. Never does the Bible deny human authorship and never does the Bible deny divine authorship either. In fact, I love this, how there are points in the Bible where the writers freely speak of a human author right along with a divine author. Both like right in the same sentence. Like Think about Jesus in Mark chapter 7. He was quoting the words Genesis 2.24. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cling to his wife. Jesus said they were written by Moses. But at the same time, he called it the commandment of God, calling it the word of God. Divine authorship, human authorship, right together, no contradiction. That's how it works. Peter did the same thing when leading the people after the death of Judas to see what happened and how is it that happened Peter said, Brethren, the Scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas. The Holy Spirit is the one that foretold it, but it came by the mouth of David. The writers of Scriptures remain the same when the Holy Spirit blows on them. And so involved is the Holy Spirit in this process. There are times in the New Testament that the Bible explicitly says the Holy Spirit spoke. The Holy Spirit wrote these things. And King David was aware of that. 2 Samuel 23, verse 2. The last song he wrote to Israel, he said, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and His Word was on my tongue. The Spirit's Word on my tongue. And Jesus affirmed this saying in Psalm 110 of David that He wrote in the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 3.7, we see the Holy Spirit identified as the writer of Psalm 95. But who wrote Psalm 95? David wrote Psalm 95. In Hebrews 10.15, we see the Holy Spirit called the writer of Jeremiah's prophecy. Jeremiah 31. And who wrote Jeremiah's prophecy in Jeremiah 31? Jeremiah. Who's buried in Grant's tomb? Exactly. Jeremiah wrote. But it says, now the Holy Spirit is teaching us. The Holy Spirit is testifying to us. And such language ought not to be surprising to us. Jesus had promised to the apostles that when He left, the Spirit of truth will come and guide you in all truth. And the result is this. When the Scripture speaks, God speaks. When the Scripture speaks, God speaks. Luke one seventy, Excellent summary. God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old. 
God is the one who spoke. Hebrews 1.1 God, after a long time ago, speaking various ways, now has spoken to us in His Son. God, speaking to our fathers through the prophets, now speaks to us in His Son. Think about the reality of the phrase I mentioned earlier. Thus says the Lord. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times, thus saith the Lord. The Bible contains the very words of God Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth. And it's written for us. Tell me, if the President of the United States wrote a book, maybe just a little short story, maybe just one page handwritten letter to you, would you keep it and read it? I think you would. And so likewise also, God has given us more than just a single page. He's given us so many infinite thoughts and things to capture our attention in here. And it's sure because it is His Word. So what we hold in our hands is the very Word of God. It's no accident. Like my Bible says on the side, it says, Holy Bible. How many of you says, Holy Bible? Take your Bible out. It says, look, okay, Holy Bible, Holy Bible quote. I wonder, maybe someone doesn't have a Holy Bible. Does someone not have a Holy Bible on there? Probably could be some. There's, what did you say, nothing? Just say, backpack Bible. Okay, we're going hip now. <laughs> it's the Holy Bible, and for right reasons, because God who wrote it is holy. It's the manual for our life tells us what to believe, tells us how we are to act. Think about the, the range of topics the Bible covers. It, it tells us about how the world was created. It tells us of the first family. It defines marriage for us. It shows us the dreadful consequence of sin, paradise lost for Adam and Eve, almost elimination of the whole human race, save Noah, his wife, his six sons and daughters-in-law. It describes how the nation of Israel was born. God came by grace to Abraham, choosing him from everybody, to put His love upon this nation, the, the Bible exposed their sin through the law. Tells us many things we need to do and gives us a righteous standard and shows us where we fail. The law recounts the history of Israel with all its ups and, and its mostly downs as people have forgotten the Lord. Giving us object lessons. It records God's mighty hand in bringing Israel back into the land. This has been prophesied and told before. It deals with the hard questions of life like pain and suffering and death. Like I think about Job does that. It peels back for the layers for us. Sometimes it shows us what's going on in the angelic world or what's showing what's going on in heaven. It gives us God's heart. It shows what God is like. It, it pictures the contrast between the blessed life and the cursed life. We see time and time again that those who love the Lord and believe in Him and trust in Him are blessed immensely and those who hate Him and despise Him and reject Him are cursed and live terrible lives suffering in the future. It puts forth an example in the Psalms of those who had a heart for God. Darren, you're great today. Psalm 102. Write it down in 102. But his hope is in God. Psalm 103 is rejoicing in the goodness and kindness of God. Just a range of emotions. Every, every human emotion there is in perspective of God are found in the Psalms. You can find them there. Much practical counsel in Proverbs. Parenting. 
Lots of counsel there. Living. How is it that you can walk wisely with people? Through the prophets, time after time again, don't rebel against the Lord and face His consequences. It tells us that in picturesque language, in, in helpful and different and interesting ways. And I love even how, how the Bible, sometimes it's law, sometimes it's commandment, sometimes it's story, sometimes it's example. Sometimes precepts, sometimes proverbs, sometimes example. All these different ways. God's just saying, okay, are, are you a kinesthetic learner? Maybe this way, right? Are you this kind of learner? This way, right? Do you learn by reading? Do you learn by listening? However you hear it, all different ways, the Bible is there to help us get it. And that's just the Old Testament. And then it brings on into the, the New Testament as well, the fulfillment of everything, the climax. Everything just gets better. We see the life of Jesus, perfect and sweet and blameless. And holy and righteous and caring and loving and powerful, majestic. And we see how the world hated Him and how the world crucified Him. It's the greatest story ever written, greatest story ever told. It's the greatest story of history. I was talking to Laura Dre on Friday. She said her brother-in-law is a pastor. He, he talked about this, how the, the crucifixion was most the cruelest and uh, unjust act of the universe simultaneously has become the most glorious and most gracious act as well. The cross of Christ. An amazing thing. An amazing thing. And then throughout the epistles, we see the life and death of Christ interpreted for us. Paul and Peter and James and Jude and the writer, the Hebrews, all tell us about what is the death of Christ, how He died so we might live through Him. In the New Testament, we see God's plan come to completion, our hopes fulfilled, heaven described. And listen, it's all a sure word. It's settled, it's established, and it's for us to give us reason how to live. And so, now comes the million dollar question where it's all been heading towards today. If God's word is sure, if there's a meaning to Scripture, if the Scripture is not from men, if the Scripture is from God, how much attention do you pay to it? Just think about this week. How much attention did I pay to the Bible this week? Just think about it. Peter said you do well to pay attention to the sure word. Chapter 1, verse 19. Our text began, it's the only words I didn't comment on yet, began in verse 20. Know this first of all. In other words, of all the things you need to know, it's in Second Peter, we're going to know and grow Here's the first thing that you need to know above all others. Know this first of all, that the Scriptures are sure. It is secure, it's dependable, and we are called to be people of the book. And I just say, we work really hard at Rock Valley Bible Church to put the Scriptures front and center of everything we do. You know, I grew up in a church that didn't put the Scriptures front and center of everything they did. And um, church helped a little in my life. Not a whole lot. But it's the Scriptures, God's sure word is put in front of us. That's what helps. Whether it's our small groups, whether it is our men's equippers, whether it's a ladies' Bible study, whether it's time with the young people at church. The Bible's forefront. It is there. It's always got to be there. We need to read the Bible. We need to pray the Bible. We need to sing the Bible. We need to preach the Bible. We need to believe the Bible. We need to, by God's help in every way, live the Bible. Because what's the end? The Bible isn't in an end in and of itself. Paul, 
said, 1 Timothy 1.5, that goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience, a sincere faith. The Bible brings us someplace. The Bible brings us to love and grace and kindness. The Bible brings our knowledge of Christ, brings us to a love of Christ. As we love Christ, we will grow in Him as His knowledge works through us and we've come full circle, right? What's the aim of our church is to know and love Jesus Christ that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of Him, right? We need to know Him. We can grow in Him. That's what it's about. That's what Peter's saying. Know the Scriptures. It's going to protect you against the false prophets. In a few weeks, we will address the false prophets. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that You would give us this morning a, a new hunger for Your Word as we see how sure it is, how steady it is, how confirming it is. And I, I didn't even mention this morning, Lord, the many books on apologetics which confirm the truth of the Word. Many people have done much research in the Dead Sea Scrolls and done much research in the text of Scripture, done much research in the manuscripts and the reliability and the archaeology and all those things could add to the sure Word of God, but there's nothing that will convince us more than hearing you yourself tell us that it is sure. It's why I took the track I did today, O Lord. So I pray that by your Spirit you'd open our hearts and trust us, show us the truthfulness of your Word that in all ways, God, you would be exalted and glorified this day and in coming months and years to come as we grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. So help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church picture time. Uh, Jim Green is going to be here at 11.30. He's got seven minutes. By the time we're set up over there, I'm sure he'll just arrive. We're going to make it as short as possible. Um, so I encourage you, let's just let's get up. Kids, we're going to do our children's notes later. Okay, so let's just get up and move there into the gymnasium and uh, we'll take a picture real fast.